Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have another Q&A session with Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. And in this episode, they'll be discussing the Sursum Corda, the Spirit in Genesis, and the validity of the administration of the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, apart from the gathered church. We are right now in the middle of our intensive course on Paul and Pauline theology in Romans and Galatians. At this very moment, Peter Lighthart is lecturing on the book of Romans, and the class is going really well, so be on the lookout for those lectures in the coming weeks. We have all of our upcoming events listed down there in the show notes for you. In the next couple of months, Paul Buckley and myself will be in Louisiana and in Chicago with our course on how to sing the Psalms. Peter Lightheart has an upcoming regional course here in Birmingham on Kings, Samuel, and Chronicles. And of course, coming up in July, we have our annual Theopolitan Ministry Conference. So for information about those events and to register, there are links down there in the show notes for you. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes is running the machinery in the background, recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out. We are doing a second episode of Question and Answer. We did a Q&A episode last week. And we're doing a second episode answering questions that were submitted by you, our listening audience. Uh, next week, we intend to start a series on the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, so uh, want to cover something in some depth that uh, is part of the Torah, that uh, is part of the legal revelation from the Old Testament. So we're going to spend, uh, likely spend a good bit of time in Deuteronomy over the next number of months. So uh, we're looking forward to that, and uh, I hope that you'll be back with us as we plunge into that book. Uh, the first question I want to start with uh, is about the Spirit as the Spirit appears in Genesis 1. A listener writes, what is the significance or purpose of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation? What waters is the Spirit hovering over? What does uh, what ramifications does it have on Trinitarian, for Trinitarian theology? Is this the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters? Uh, and lastly, why is it the Spirit of God? Why is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? So I'll, I'll address a couple of those and then open it up for your input. Uh, first of all, what waters is the Spirit hovering over? Well, I think that what we have in Genesis one one is initial act of creation. I don't think that's a heading for the chapter. I think it's initial act of creation, and God creates two different zones. He creates the heavens, which I take to be the high heavens. God's own dwelling place, his throne room, not the sky, but his uh, ultimate heavens. That's the model both for the sky and ultimately going to be the model and the, the the blueprint for earth. And then he creates the earth. And then verse two begins by describing the condition of the earth as it's first made. So the formless and void and dark, deep, that is the shape that earth is initially in. That's a condition that earth is initially in. So the waters that the spirit hovers over, the waters of the deep, and the spirit is going to form those into the uh, the structured and filled creation that we see around us. So I think that's that's what the waters are, and I do think that this is the spirit of God. This is the uh, ruach Elohim. Uh, ruach can mean wind, uh, as well as spirit, and uh, sometimes uh, the this uh, word is translated or rendered, interpreted in 
Genesis 1-2 as referring to a great and mighty wind, with Elohim not being a reference to God, but being a reference to the quality of the wind. So it's a, a divine-like wind. And sometimes mighty wind in, interpreted that way is understood as part of the chaos of the original creation. So you have a, a deep that's formless and empty, uh, and there's a mighty wind that's blowing over the surface of the deep, and it's it's a it's a it's a continuing portrait of the of, of the uh, disorder and the formlessness of the world. I, I think instead we should read the darkness over the surface of the deep and the spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Those two things are in parallel or contrast to one another. So the spirit of God is uh, the ruach Elohim is not another uh, an additional disorderly element in the picture, but the response to the darkness and formlessness and emptiness. And if you look up the phrase spirit of God um, elsewhere in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that uh, that that particular phrase refers to the spirit of God. For example, in Exodus 31, when the Ruach Elohim comes on Bezalel and uh, equips him to make, make um, the furnishings of the tabernacle. That's not a mighty wind that's coming over him. That's not a divine-like wind. That's the spirit of God equipping him with wisdom. And uh, the, the parallel is pretty strong because Bezalel is introduced as part of a of a creation sequence in the book of Exodus. He's being filled with creative wisdom to form things for the tabernacle. Uh, and so the two passages, I think, are helpfully, um, helpfully connected with each other. And we can also bring in Deuteronomy 32, 18, which uh, uses the verb uh, hovering that's used here in Genesis 1-2. And there it's clearly the Lord Yahweh who is hovering over his people as a protective, uh, as a protector and a, as the images of a protecting bird, protecting his young. So I think this is the spirit of God and he's hovering over the, the watery deep of the original earth. So could we say, and this is moving on, I guess, to what ramifications it might have on uh, Trinitarian theology. Could we say that we've got here um, a, a breath in that we've got, the spirit you know a a speaker um and a word a, a spoken word that that seems a reasonable uh thing to me to um say and to be useful um not as some perfect analogy for the uh, trinity but just to present three things where there is a kind of mutual um reliance um you know you can't have a spoken word without a speaker and um, a speaker uh, can't really be said to be uh, in a meaningful sense a speaker unless he does have uh, breath and a and produces spoken words and and so it does feel significant to me that at the very outset of the um whole bible we've we've got these um three things which are um individual and and yet uh fundamentally interconnected and, and even kind of dependent um in in some way yeah i agree with that i think there's a there's a trinitarian pattern going on there uh with elohim the spirit of elohim and then elohim's speech the word and I, i'm put in mind of irenaeus's idea that god works in creation the father works in creation through what irenaeus calls his two hands his son and his spirit his word and his breath his word and his wind and I think that's the that's the picture you get right from the beginning of the Bible. I, I mentioned the protective idea that you have in in uh, Deuteronomy 32 of a bird hovering over its young to protect it. And you have Jesus using that image of Jerusalem 
he wishes to be like a hen covering his covering her chicks, but the people of Jerusalem refuse to come under his protection. So that that imagery of of wing of a winged bird is uh, seems to be oh, that's that's the immediate connection with the with the verb that's used here. But I also wonder if the if we once we introduce the idea of a winged bird that's hovering over the waters, I wonder if we are also uh, in other we have other uh, connotations of wing that come into the into view. So the you know going into the Lord's presence is coming under the shadow of His wings. The Spirit appears uh, as a uh, as a, as as a a glory cloud, and when Ezekiel sees that up close, it's a it's a cluster of winged angelic beings that that constitute the glory cloud uh, that uh, in which Yahweh in which Yahweh moves. Uh, and when, once you once you introduce the idea of a winged uh, covering, then I, I wonder if there's a uh, there's some kind of nuptial image here that the the Creator Elohim is spreading the wing of his the wing of his garment over the creation over the earth speaking to it and there's an image of um the the creation coming into being through the lord's um overshadowing of the 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 feminine creation the to home uh the, the word to home can be used in parallel at least it, it is at least one place used in parallel with with the womb so there's almost seems like a birth image or or a marital image that's uh that's being evoked here Another dimension that's often missed of the work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit brings form and order. So when the Spirit comes down, when the Spirit descends, say, for example, on Mount Sinai, he brings the law and he brings the rituals and the architecture of the tabernacle and sacrificial system. And he also forms up what was a amorphous people coming out of Egypt into a nation. That is often missed because the Spirit sometimes is associated with breaking free from form and order, whereas the Spirit in, in most cases, even in in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you know, uh, the Spirit brings order to a disordered assembly. And then the other, other thing, and I I think maybe this was mentioned by somebody is that the Holy Spirit, of course, in Genesis 1, uh, the Ruach, the breath of God, the Son is the word of the Father, but the Holy Spirit gives breath to the word. So the Holy Spirit makes the word audible and therefore musical. So if the Father is the author and the Son is the word, the Holy Spirit's the breath of God, the music of God, so that God speaks the world into existence, but he does it in a musical way. And I, I, I'm i not sure where I heard that, probably from Jordan before, but that always made sense to me because the Spirit makes the word musical. And that's, you even, you the Spirit is the one who gives gift of musical instruments to uh, the community for singing and for accompanying and glorifying the human voice. You get that it, it, in the time of the kings with uh, the building of the temple, well, with the preparations for the building of the temple with David. So there's this, there's this glorification going on, the spirit hovering over the waters, God the Father 
speaking the word, singing the word, and then forming the world into a glorious habitation, reflective of his own glory, but also then given to man for his glory as well. I think that musical dimension, um, you you could cite Ephesians 5, uh, be filled with the Spirit, and then immediately Paul talks about making melody in your heart and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there's a connection between the Spirit's presence and music, and also all of the um, examples of the Lord appearing with with noise and with sound, with a great trumpet blast at Sinai, for example, and other places that describe his arrival uh, and describe the, the the sound and the noise and the and the cra- the the uh, power of the of the voice of the Lord that comes with this glory appearance. Uh, Meredith Klein's images of the Spirit uh, shows that that glory is connected with the Spirit. It's the it's a it's a kind of visible manifestation of the third person, but it comes with word. It comes with sound. So I think that yeah, I think that's uh, that's part of the imagery. So the Spirit is there as the uh, one who orchestrates, uh, orders, organizes the creation, and the Spirit is the the Spirit and Word are the agents by which Elohim is going to form the world, fill the world, dispel the darkness, uh, and again bring the original formless void deep uh, to to uh, nurture that into the creation that we know. Yes, I mean to state the obvious, I guess wind is a particularly apt picture of kind of God's working you know we don't literally see the um wind but we see its um effects we see what it's doing and there's obviously something um very remarkable or or supernatural about the way in which an immaterial God can interact with a physical world and I I wonder if the notion there of a of a uh, wind is is intended to be some sort of um, interface or, or have some sort of agency um, in that sense. But either way, it does seem to me, sort of thinking through the, the um, narrative of Scripture, that we often have this combination of uh, wind stroke spirit and water. And so after the flood, for instance, it is the wind that um, blows and, and the waters then start to um, uh, sort of, what's the word, assuage or something like that. I think the King James uh, might have, they, they start to sort of uh, sink down in, in the um, uh, Exodus. Um, there is the, sort of the Lord drives the, the sea back by this strong um, uh, wind. And, and um, your example from um, Deuteronomy 32, Peter, I don't think wind is um, mentioned, but there have kind of the, um, let's say the spirit of God um, hovering after some great tumultuous event. I think it's possibly after either the Exodus or or Babel that the scene there in in Deuteronomy 32 is is describing. And so it it does seem that this image of the the spirit stroke wind over um, water is is kind of... um, starts new phases in um history as if there has been some great cataclysmic um event and then the lord starts moving and, and reforming and recreating uh again with that combination with with the wind and water good let's on move on to another question uh, this one is a question of practical theology and also sacramental has sacramental overtones how would you describe and defend the boundaries of sacramental administration? 
Practically, can a group outside the institutional church celebrate the Lord's Supper? In the absence of a faithful Pado-Baptist church, can a father take his child to the lake and baptize her? And then uh, the questioner asks, I'm asking, adds, I'm asking for a friend. So, uh, Jeff, do you have thoughts on that one? Uh, you being the yeah. pastor amongst us, <laughs> would you recommend that? <laughs> well, let's let's start with a basic distinction, which is often missed by even even pastors, and that is the distinction between good order and validity. For example, baptism can be a valid baptism when it's performed by a Christian using the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water, you know, that's a valid baptism. It might, might not have been done very well. The uh, not might not have been uh, uh, performed with, in good order. So I've had uh, children who've come to the church who've been baptized by their father in the bathtub, for example. And I ask, you know, well, dad's a Christian. Did he do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit? Yeah, okay, that's a valid baptism, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's just not, it's not the best way to do it. Or someone who's baptized by a camp counselor in a lake in summer. Um, okay, that's that's a valid baptism. On the other hand, if there's a baptism that's done uh, in the name of, of uh, creator, uh, redeemer or sanctifier. No, uh, uh, those aren't names. That's not the name of God. Those are, uh, those are descriptions of what he does that who knows who that is that, and that's also ideologically driven in order to avoid the masculine gender of the names of God. Um, that's not valid. And so you'd, you'd want to do that one again. So, okay. So having made that distinction, I think, uh, the uh, the way the church has ordered the use of the sacraments is helpful in order to bring out the meaning, in order to also incorporate the body of Christ into the into the ritual, say the rite of baptism, so that ba- baptizing by a pastor in the midst of a congregation is ordinarily the way to do it. Even though we don't really see that in New Testament, people get baptized all the time in jails and by rivers and and even by puddles in the case of Acts 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, so, so again, validity and good order, I think it's helpful. Now, the, the question about the Lord's Supper is, is a little different. I don't think that a valid, I don't think it's valid to do the Lord's Supper apart from the, a local body, a local church. And a local church usually is defined by, you know, the three marks, sound doctrine, discipline or at least order some sort of of uh, government and the sacraments of course and the sacraments rightly done so i've had i've had over the years this happened uh, maybe about three years ago someone told me that someone else in the church is inviting people over to their house i think it was during advent and that they were going to do the lord's supper over there and so this person told me that this was happening i'm like uh and he wanted to know whether his family should go to that. I said, well, wait, wait a minute. I need to talk with this person. So I talked with them and said, look, this is really not what the supper is about. It's not an opportunity for enhanced private or family or party devotions. It's about the church. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as the church, uh, it's 
you take the Lord's Supper. It's about the body of Christ. So uh, actually, the person heard the argument and said, yeah, you're right. I, I didn't really think about it, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm not sure what, let's see, what, did we answer all those questions? Anyway, that's my, that's my perspective. Yeah, I, th- I think you did. The, the question I would have, the kind of the extreme case that I think of when I talk, think about uh, the Lord's Supper is uh, situations where, you know, maybe a prison camp where uh, there's no, there's no constituted church as such, there's no minister available as such, could a group of believers in that setting constitute themselves as a kind of body uh, and perhaps even select somebody who's going to preside and, you know, use what, what little, um, what little they can gather of elements in order to celebrate Eucharist in that setting. And it seems to me in that, in that kind of extreme setting that I think that would be, I think that would be, that would be fine. And that would be good in a setting where there's no ministers available and you have a group of believers. It seems like they can constitute themselves as a body uh, and appoint somebody who's going to be their leader. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I have no problem with that at all. But this this would be a group that does have not have access to uh, the church or right. to minister the church. That would be fine. I mean, yeah. you you have the same kind of situation with uh, shut-ins, people who can't make it to service, whether they're in a nursing facility or in prison. And uh, yeah, we bring we bring the church to them. We bring the supper to them, basically. And uh, yeah, yeah. So. But extraordinary. I'm even I'm even open. Uh, I've talked to others about this. You know, we have churches in rural areas in Missouri and Illinois. Mm. Who, according to our Book of Church order, you can't do the supper unless there's a minister present. And well, a minister might not be able to get there <laughs> very often, or you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that just doesn't work. Especially if, like a PCA minister, minister from your own denomination. Well, uh, that that's I think it's ridiculous to think that you can't appoint someone. Now, there are there are downsides to this, but still, I think it, you can appoint someone, some man, uh, some elder to go ahead and be the, the one who administers the supper so that the congregation has access to the body and blood of Jesus and doesn't have to w- wait for a minister to come once every six months, things like that. Yeah. Uh, I think you need to be careful to do that. I don't think everybody should do that just because your pastor's gone for a week or two or something like that. But there are these extreme situations, extraordinary situations where I think it's it's better to have the supper, even if it's not done according to all the rubrics that are required in whatever denomination you're in. It seems to me that in scripture, Various ordinances have always had a kind of flexibility to them if we, and gone through various stages. If we think about the Passover, it feels like this was originally something done within homes, sort of small groups and so forth. Um, later, it would have had a more institutionalised sense to do with the temple. Um, at times, there were extreme circumstances like um, Hezekiah's uh, Passover, where kind of various regulations had to be waived in order to get things sacrificed um, in on time. And um, obviously there's an evolution with um, the response to Jesus' 
command to take uh, eat this, this is my body and 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 um kind of initially there's this kind of daily um house to house sense to it which becomes more formal and it seems to me that in these um strange situations that we're talking about when you can't have a minister there or, or there's a prison camp or, or whatever we're just in um one of those kind of pre-developed um phases you know um and 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 we just have to do um what we can do to be obedient to these things which are ultimately energized just by jesus direct commands aren't they to take and to eat or on the other hand to be uh baptized and uh i th- thought your distinction between kind of um uh what's valid and and what's ideal is is then a uh very helpful one jeff i think there's also a danger here of having an almost magical view of the sacraments that they work in a very automatic way and they don't need to be confirmed or lived out in some way and i think a lot of the point of these things can be understood better when we think about what is taking place the lord's supper is or baptism is a sacrament of you being united with Christ and his church. Now, if you're celebrating that in a way that is detached from the life of the church, it seems to be undermining the actual purpose. It would be like going through an adoption ceremony and then going back to live in the orphanage. It seems that these things need to be confirmed in your mode of practice. So Paul can talk to the Corinthians and say that the practice that they have of the Lord's Supper is not actually communion. They're not they're celebrating it in a way that ultimately undermines the meaning of the union of the church. They're celebrating in a selfish and self-preoccupied way without actually considering the other Christians around them. And so some are going back drunk and others are going back hungry. And in these sorts of questions, I think that can be a good touchstone for thinking, is this a healthy practice or not? Is this something that's leaning into the actual meaning of the sacrament? Is it manifesting what this sacrament is supposed to be manifesting? Is it receiving what this sacrament is holding out to us? Or is it um, treating the sacrament as if it were automatically and magically bestowing something apart from being willing to receive the form in which it is given to us in our brother and sister in Christ, in the body of Christ that we have, in um, that we're brought into. So in extraordinary situations, you can certainly imagine that there may not be access to a local congregation, there may not be access to um, a minister, there may not be access to certain um, facilities to have certain um, practices that you'd expect to be part of a proper celebration and yet in those extraordinary situations you can see that the intent and the um, impulse of the sacrament may be fully present even though the full realization of it may be limited and in other cases where there is a local church there are local and faithful ministers and yet people are going off to do their own thing what you have is a resistance and turning away from what the actual, what the sacrament actually means. Yeah, I think that's a great way to understand the prescriptions that the church has made in order to order 
the the um, the way the sacraments are practiced. So uh, it's not necessarily you can't really find an example of baptism being done in the church necessarily in the book of Acts. But again, the book of Acts is the church in its infant stage too, and a lot of it is a lot of the baptisms are missionary kind of baptisms. And yet, at the same time, if we're going to bring out the meaning of baptism and not just treat it, as you say, uh, Elser, as some sort of magical individual kind of thing, then we're going to take into account Romans uh, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 12, and recognize that to baptize a child in the community, in the assembly, helps everybody remember what this is about, including the person baptized and the parents and, and the congregation. We're incorporating, baptism is incorporating this child or this adult into the body of Christ. And so if, if we're going to require that ordinarily for ministers to do the baptism in the, in the church, that's the reason so that the fullness of the meaning can be can be appropriated by people and that yeah that's a helpful way of thinking about the orders that uh surround the practices of these sacraments yeah just uh, let me add one final practical suggestion um i know there are people in situations who are in baptist churches for example that become convinced pedo baptists they have a child the baptist church is not interested in baptizing um i uh, I've performed baptisms for people in churches in, in situations like that, but I've done it with the proviso that the family who wants the child baptized has gotten permission from their local church. So they're not doing something off on their own. They're not defying the church's authority. Uh, the church is aware of their the convictions that they have, and they get permission from their pastors. And I think in most cases, pastors uh, pastors of Baptist churches or Baptistic churches We'll be happy to delegate that uh, for members who don't don't uh, share those convictions. So the, the the alternatives are not just between getting it done in your own local church and doing it in the swimming pool or the nearby lake. Uh, there are there are ways to there are ways to do it in a more regularized fashion, even if you can't do it in your own local church. Yeah, and one more thing to say about that too. Um, I've actually had it work both ways. I have had Baptist pastors who said no. Uh, and even if they say yes, uh, the problem is you, you baptize a child, a baby, and they're in a Baptist church. Um, and back to Alistair's point is they're not going to treat that child, uh, as if they're baptized, they're going to treat them in Sunday school classes and church services as they do every other child. Um, they're not going to recognize it. So there's, it's, it's kind of counterproductive at times because don't expect that somehow the baptism is actually going to be recognized and lived out in your community because it's not. Um, and sometimes it's just best to conform to whatever church community you're, you're part of because that's the way your children are going to be treated anyway. And unless you move to another church, another assembly, another congregation, the baptism's really not going to change anything. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. The I guess the thing I would I would suggest as a counter to that is I, I mean I think there are parents who have convictions of conscience, and I don't think it's 
uh, means a magical view of baptism. They have convictions of conscience that they should, before God, have their infant children baptized. And they recognize that that's, it's going to be an imperfect situation that their children are going to be in, but they still believe that that's what God requires of them. So those are the kind of situations that I think there are ways to accommodate it. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. Um, and of course, the child is going to be treated as a baptized Christian in the family. That's good. I just want parents to understand that they might come into conflict with the leadership of the church right. if they insist somehow that their child be considered Baptist, baptized in a Baptist church. Yeah. Well, let's move on to another question. This, again, is a liturgical question. The uh, question is, what arguments are there for and against having the Sursum Corda before the readings instead of before the Eucharist? The Sursum Corda is an exchange that exists in uh, many historic liturgies. Lift up your hearts. That's what Sursum Corda means. And then the congregation responds, we lift them up to the Lord. Historically, the Sursum Corda has been included as part of the Eucharistic liturgy. Right at the beginning of the Eucharistic liturgy, it's part of the uh, uh, it's one of the exchanges that uh, leads up to the Eucharistic prayer and the Sanctus, uh, and uh, moves into the into the meal. And Calvin uses that as one argument uh, uh, for seeing his uh, for for that, that buttresses his understanding of what's happening in the Lord's Supper and and the real presence in particular. He points to the Sursum Court of this. It's a note of ascension. We lift up our hearts. Uh, we lift them up to the Lord. There's a sense in which we're ascending into heaven. Uh, that's the way. One of the ways that Calvin thinks about communing with Christ at the Lord's table. It's not a reincarnation. It's not the Jesus who has been exalted reverses his exaltation and comes back down uh, and is present with us. But rather, he lifts us up to him so that we can feast on him in heavenly places by faith. The questioner is asking about the placement of the Sursum Corda because um, for several decades, people people in churches around Biblical Horizons and Theopolis uh, have uh, moved the Sursum Corda from its traditional place, which is part of the Eucharistic liturgy, to a position right after the confession of sin and absolution at the beginning of the service. So instead of the ascension taking place after the ministry of the word, which is the traditional placement. You have the ministry, you have confession of sin, absolution, reading of scripture, preaching of scripture, and then there's a sursum corda, a mark of ascent. Instead, there's an ascent that takes place uh, immediately after the confession and absolution, and the word and table are both considered to be part of the ascent. And the reason for doing that, um, uh, I'll say briefly, one of the one of them has to do with the the way that uh, the sequence of offerings works in Levitical uh, liturgies. When you have a series of offerings done in in sequence, uh, it's typically a sin offering or purification offering that's an offering of cleansing. Then there's an offering of ascent, the olah or holborn offering that's an ascension offering. And then at the climax, you have a peace offering, which is a meal. So in that sequence, the ascent is part of the uh, it it's comes after the purification rather than something that awaits the conclusion of a sequence. It's not the ascent doesn't happen at the time of the peace offering. The ascent happens before the peace offering. And then if you look at something like the sequence of events in Exodus twenty four, uh, Exodus nineteen through twenty four, 
or um, in the book of Revelation, the ascension takes place at the beginning of the book of Revelation. John goes through the door in the in the uh, in heaven, uh, and he sees the book unscrolled. Un, the the uh, the seals of the book are opened, and then the book is un, uh, unfolded, unrolled, and read. And later he sees the chalices. But that whole time he's ascended into heaven. So the whole word and sacrament sequence that that pairing takes place after the ascent, and that's the case also in in uh, Exodus. 19 through 24, that there's an ascent of Moses, at least, to deliver the word and to receive the word. And then there's a, a second ascent of the elders and the and the priests in chapter 24 for a meal. I do think that this, this issue about where to place the Sursum Corda is not a matter of the essence of the uh, liturgy. It's bene, it's bene essa, it's beneficial. And and guys can differ over this, and of course traditions differ. Um, most Presbyterians don't even have a Sursum Corda, so it's uh, Anglicans and and uh, Lutherans do on the Protestant side anyway. So I don't think this is like something to break fellowship over, or something if you come into a church where the Sursum Corda is put somewhere else that it, it's a it's a huge big deal. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the critique uh, comes from, of course, uh, Jim Jordan, and his critique of the divided service. That all of a sudden, you know, it's the old, it's the early church model of synaxis and Eucharist, um, and something different is happening in the Eucharist and a different audience as well. The catechized uh, get to be a part of the synaxis, but then they leave until they're baptized, all of that. Um, and the argument is that, no, the service is a, a, whole, a seamless whole that moves from confession, consecration, into communion. And that once we confess our sins and we're forgiven, then we have this, the Lord draws us near to himself and, and, and we ascend. We recognize it now. We the Lord has forgiven us. He invites us in close, if you will, to praise him, to hear his life-giving word. Um, and that's something we say in the Sursum Corda, whether we feel like it or not, we confess it to be true. Um, this is also um, when the singing begins or when the singing in earnest begins, because uh, confession and absolution are usually done without singing. Um, and it's, again, rooted in the temple liturgy, if you remember, when the ascension offering begins in the temple liturgy, the, the, the musical instruments start and the, uh, the singing begins. That's in Second Chronicles 29. So, um, so again, I think it's appropriate. It's not necessary, but it's appropriate to remind people that after the absolution that they're in heaven, they've made an ascent into God's presence and they start singing. Well, yeah, that's it. The last question for this episode, I think, is directed particularly to Alistair, to Alistair, not at, although maybe at. <laughs> um, uh, he's been doing some work on the book of Judges. And the question is, please discuss the thesis that the story of the Levites concubine, the subsequent civil war and the kidnap and then kidnapping of women into forced marriage is a study of the dynamics of domestic abuse and how abusers manipulate society in order to get away with their crimes. It's kind of a leading question 
you don't have to uh, address the question in that form. But Alice, you've been working on Judges 19. Uh, what uh, what what have you been finding there? Yes, it's a very um, significant passage within the book. In part, it's an interesting passage because it reminds us of several other passages and looks forward to passages that we'll find later on in scripture. Um, and then the more closely you look at the passage, the more you'll notice there are details of it that seem to connect with earlier passages and with the passages that immediately follow it. So one of the first things to notice is the story recalls the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, the angels come to the city of Sodom and there's the um, person there who's the sojourner within the city who invites them in rather than them staying in the open square. And then there's the threat at the doorway. The people of the city want to um, lie with them. And this attempt at homosexual rape is um, prevented, or it seems to be um, the strategy originally by Lot is to offer his, his daughters. Um, and something similar happens in the story of Gibeah in chapter 19 of Judges, except on that occasion, the concubine is actually thrown out. Now, when we read the book of Judges, one of the things that should surprise us is that at the end, we have characters that can't have been present at the same time as um, Samson and others. When we're reading chapters 19 to 21, we find the character of Phineas. Phineas is the leader of the people in Numbers chapter 31. When they go out and attack the Midianites, he's the one who stops the plague in chapter 25 of Numbers. He's someone who's part of the um, Exodus generation. And so this is a story that's been put out of its um, chronological order and placed at the end of the book. In part, it seems to me, as an interpretive framework for the whole of the book. And so when you're reading the book of Judges, as E.T.A. Davidson argues, there is this constant commentary between the stories. All of these stories are glosses upon each other in ways that call us to pay attention. So if you're reading the story of the Levite and the concubine, and then you read the story that follows, you'll see a lot of similarities. You'll see things like fleeing and then taking refuge in a particular location for four months, you'll see the same terminology used to describe the Benjaminites as is used to describe the Levites' concubine. And Joshua Berman has written um, about this extensively in his book on narrative parallels with battles. And so there's a lot of artistry going on in that chapter and within the wider setting of the end of Numbers. You can also think of the way in which themes of the story of Rachel are playing out. So you have in the preceding chapters, you have an unwitting curse made by a mother that um, dooms her son, um, who Micah has stolen some of his mother's money, 1,100 pieces of silver, which relates to the 1,100 pieces of silver of Samson in the chapter before, the money that he's sold for. And so you have this story of that then leads to Micah setting up this shrine for idols that he's bought. And then the Danites coming with 600 men. We'll see 600 men from Benjamin in a couple of chapters time. And they come and they take his household gods, his teraphim, and he tries to pursue them and ends up failing in that goal. 
And so it's having themes that might remind us of the story of Rachel, the pursuit of the teraphim, the sojourning in the person's house. And then we see in the next chapter, there's this other similar detail. There's a man who's sojourning in the hill country of Ephraim. There's the um, man of Judah who's going down to Bethlehem to get his wife back. And so that's an inverse of what we have in the preceding chapters. And so it seems to me that this is commentary upon the deep story of, of Israel. It's commentary upon the story of Rachel and the death of Rachel. The Levite's concubine dies near the site of Rachel's death. And Benjamin's fate is on the line in the chapters that follow. And their fates seem to be connected as well in the way that the chapters um, play off these literary parallels between the character of the Benjaminites and the Levite's concubine. And so stepping back from all of this, what do we make of it? And, and again, it's worth thinking, we have the, the um, Levite who goes after his concubine with his servant and the donkeys. And later on, we'll have in the story of, of Saul, he goes with his servant to seek for the donkeys, and he's directed by his servant into this city um, or town before they go back. And then he meets the woman at the well, etc. And so it's playing out the same story. And then later on, he goes, he's Saul of Gibeah, he goes in defense of Jabesh Gilead, and he cuts off the, up the oxen and sends them out in the same way as the Levite's concubine was. And so this story is commenting, it seems to me, upon the wider narrative. And it seems that the Levite's concubine um, represents something of the relationship between the religious leaders, the Levite represented by the Levite, and the nation. This is an unfaithful woman who has run away from the um, her husband, and her husband is abusive and cruel and uncaring towards her, and will later on lie to try and cover up his part in the whole affair. And so what we have is an image of domestic abuse, but within the context of judges, it's being used to describe the relationship between the people and their leaders. And the Levite's concubine is not a, an entirely innocent victim within the story either. She represents an unfaithful people. And so we have a complicated story that is doing a lot of um, symbolic and typological work within its context. It's drawing our minds back to Rachel. It's drawing our minds forward to, to Saul. It's connecting with the story of Micah. It's connecting with the story of the Benjaminites. And so it's dangerous, it seems to me, to try and put too much weight upon this as um, practical application to just the question of um, spousal abuse. That is definitely something that we can speak to from it. Um, but we need to recognize there's a lot more going on within this story that um, when it's read within its context, it will enable us to see a bigger picture. And we speak from that bigger picture into these sorts of questions of spousal abuse. And I think that's the case with scripture more generally. We're not coming to the text just with our needs and our pressing concerns and um, conscripting the text to those concerns, we're hearing the text on its own terms, and then from that we can work into the specific questions that we have. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.